This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. Today I'm joined by Jessica Trisco Darden, Alexis Henshaw, and Ora Seckley, who co authored the new book Insurgent Women Female Combatants in Civil Wars. Insurgent Women looks at women's participation in three asymmetric conflicts with case studies from Ukraine, the Kurdish region of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, and Colombia. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'd like to start with some introductions. If I could ask you to each tell us a little bit about yourself and which case study you'll be speaking about today. My name is Jessica Trisco Darden. I'm an assistant professor at American University School of International Service and a Jean Kirkpatrick fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I wrote the chapter on Ukraine. And I'm Alexis Henshaw. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Troy University, and I worked on the Columbia case. And I'm Ora Seckley. I'm an associate professor of political science at Clark University, and I contributed the chapter on the Kurdish forces. Jessica, could you start us off by talking about how you became interested in looking at what's going on with female combatants? Well, I think all three of us have been very interested in women's participation in conflict for quite some time. But uh, Oris Eccley and myself actually wrote a piece for the Washington Post on uh, February 9th, 2015, where we we essentially, you know, looked around at the conflicts that were raging at that time, uh, the war against ISIS in the Middle East, the Ukrainian civil war. And when we looked at those conflicts, we saw women playing an outsized role in ways that weren't being acknowledged uh, openly by scholars or by the media. And so we argued that this really marked a turning point and, and that contemporary warfare was no longer just a man's game. Uh, we followed on that piece with a workshop that Alexis Henshaw and I organized at American University that really looked at the different ways that women were involved in contemporary conflicts, and that laid the foundation for this book. I want to ask you more about each of these case studies in detail. But first, I'd like to ask you all how you selected your case study. Alexis, could you start us off? Sure. I can talk a little bit about my experience with Colombia. Uh, so I'm a Spanish speaker. I've long had an interest in Latin American politics. But initially, I was interested in women's involvement in the civil conflict in El Salvador. Salvador, which is another uh, long-lasting civil war in Central America that had extensive female participation. And I worked on that case a little bit in graduate school and had proposed to include it in my first book, Why Women Rebel, which came out in 2017. And some of the feedback I had gotten from reviewers on that book basically sort of questioned why that case was relevant. And there seemed to be an implication that, uh, you know, Latin American conflicts were something that was in the past, that they weren't as relevant for us to study as some other cases. And obviously, I didn't believe that to be true. Uh, and I had started getting involved in the Colombian conflict sort of as a way to refute that. Uh, and as I got more involved in researching some of the different groups that were involved and the uh, extent to which women were really participating in that conflict, uh, I sort of got more and more interested in developing that as part of a kind of standalone project. Jessica, same question. How did you get interested in your case study? 
Sure. In terms of uh, the Ukrainian case, I think Ukraine is very interesting because when we generally think of conflict or civil war, we imagine these happening, you know, somewhere very far away. Um, but Ukraine, you know, is is very close to the center of Europe and a case that has significant implications for uh, national security uh, throughout the European continent. I uh, am a uh, of Ukrainian descent, and so I, uh, you know, keep track of what's going on there. And when I looked at that conflict, I saw women playing important roles on both sides, fighting both for the Ukrainian government to keep Ukraine um, whole, maintain its territorial integrity, but also on the pro-Russian rebel side or the separatist side. And I think that was one dimension that was very interesting to me, that women were as divided on this issue as the country as a whole was at the time. And Aura, how did you arrive on the topic of your case study? So I, I will openly admit that I kind of fell into my interest in women fighters in the Kurdish armed groups by accident. Um, I'm not actually a specialist in, in either Kurdish or Turkish politics. All my previous research has been on armed groups in the Arab world. But I was in Turkey for a workshop a few years ago and decided to go out to Diyarbakir, which is the largest city in the Kurdish region of eastern Turkey. Um just because I thought it might be interesting. Um, but political scientists are really bad at going on vacation. Uh, and so I sort of accidentally ended up at a protest that had been organized by the civilian political party that's allied, well, not officially allied, but that's let's call them fellow travelers with the PKK in Turkey. And what really surprised me uh, was how many women there were. There were women leading the protest. There were women um, like riding on the bus at the front of the protest. There were women journalists for the Kurdish media covering the protest. Uh, and this was really different than what I'd seen in all of the armed movements that I'd studied uh, on the Arab left in the past. And so I thought, OK, this is um, this is kind of unusual. This is sort of interesting. And I started digging a little bit and uh, became really interested in why it is we see so many female combatants in both the Tur the, the Kurdish units in the Kurdish armed groups that are based in Turkey and in Syria. But on the other hand, why there just aren't that many in Iraq. Jessica, the first case study is yours looking at Ukraine, where there's a history of women participating in armed groups. How were women involved in conflict historically, and how does that history influence the present? Ukraine is a very interesting case in that women were very actively involved in resistance movements throughout Ukrainian history. So the earliest documentation we have of women's participation in asymmetric conflict or insurgency actually dates to about the 1920s when women were involved in resisting what was Polish rule over parts of Ukraine at that time. And during that period of Polish control, several Ukrainian nationalist movements arose, the most uh, well-known of which is the um, UPAR, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And within that group, women played important roles as couriers, as informants. They basically laid the groundwork for the group's insurgent success. Once the Nazis rolled into Ukrainian territory during the Second World War, women again participated in groups that resisted Nazi rule, but also some groups that, that more or less tried to collaborate with the Nazis uh, with the goal of an independent Ukraine in mind. Eventually, the Red Army came in, uh, which itself had high levels of female participation, and Ukrainian nationalist groups shifted their focus to resisting uh, Soviet occupation of Ukraine. And throughout kind of these different waves of occupation, women uh, continued to play an important role mobilizing resistance. The case study continues with an examination of the protests in 2013 surrounding the Ukraine's association with the European Union. Can you tell us more about what was happening at that time? So the current conflict in Ukraine, which remains, uh, you know, stalemated, 
stems from uh, this decision by then President Viktor Yanukovych to uh, seek closer ties to Russia and to suspend uh, the foundation for kind of EU membership, a pathway to EU membership. That led to mass protests that were known as the Euromaidan or the Maidan movement, where hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians flooded into the central square in the capital of Kiev. And within those protests, women played a very central role. Some anthropological studies and sociological studies suggest that, you know, women made up to 40, 45 percent of the Maidan protesters. But the roles that they played within that protest movement was very circumscribed. They were responsible for cleaning the square, for making sure protesters got fed, for uh, providing medical care. They weren't on the front lines of those violent protests that erupted between uh, demonstrators and uh, government security forces. And so we see that as that uh, conflict over the future of Ukraine eventually erupted into a civil war through Russian intervention in Crimea and then again in eastern Ukraine, that women's roles have kind of evolved since 2013 to the present day. We see fewer women participating um, in the actual armed conflict portion of the civil war in Ukraine in comparison to the Maidan protest movements, but they're still there. Uh, and they're still contributing in very important ways and fighting over the future of Ukraine. Did you find any differences between the women participating in the pro-government side versus the separatist groups? Absolutely. Women who are fighting on behalf of the government, either in the actual Ukrainian armed forces uh, or with numbers of government-aligned militias, uh, which were initially sponsored by kind of wealthy Ukrainian oligarchs uh, as private battalions, but some of which have now actually been folded into the Ukrainian armed forces. These women, you know, were by and large raised in an independent post-Soviet Ukraine. They have a strong sense of Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian identity. Uh, They tend to be younger in age, in their teens, late teens, early 20s. Um, And they really see their participation in this conflict as a fight for the survival of an independent Ukraine. In many ways, the conflict is romanticized. There's this idea of kind of danger on the front lines, but also a very understandable kind of patriotic fervor that they want to go defend their nation and their homeland. On the side of those women fighting for kind of the pro-separatist, pro-Russian groups in the uh, eastern regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, those women tend to be relatively older. Uh, In their 30s and even in their 40s, they tend to have vested interests, right? Their families, their properties, their children that they feel like they're protecting. And so in many senses, we see these women articulate a more defensive nationalism. So, for example, one one separatist militia commander observed, I don't know if it's heroism or not. The people are just fighting for their homeland. We didn't go to them they themselves came to us claiming to protect us. So it's very much the sense that the Ukrainian government brought war to eastern Ukraine and that they're being mobilized in response. But in addition to these differences, I think there are a lot of important similarities. So for instance, women on both sides of this conflict are very proud of their accomplishments, not only as fighters, but also as women. So you see a lot of references to, for example, women's ability to cook. They're excellent cooks. They're very proud of that. But they're also just as proud uh, of the fact that they can assemble a Kalashnikov in 45 seconds. Next, I want to turn to Aura and the second case study, where you dive into the various Kurdish groups in Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. And this case study highlighted some differences with women's participation in a conflict with multiple actors. What did you learn from examining the conflicts involving Kurdish groups? I think the 
the variation that we see between the very high rate of women's participation in the armed groups uh, from the Kurdish communities that are based in Turkey and Syria on the one hand, and then the much lower rates of participation uh, in the the major armed groups in Iraq, which are collectively referred to as the Peshmerga, but the, the political parties that are associated with them are the Kurdish Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the KDP and PUK. So there's this really interesting contrast there between um, these two communities that are often, you know, viewed as being in some ways quite similar culturally, but we have these very different rates of uh, women's mobilization. And so one of the things that I was really interested in digging into with this book was to try and understand where that variation came from. Um, And the conclusion that uh, we came to was that uh, there are basically two reasons for it. So one is ideology. Unsurprisingly, we have, there's a lot of evidence in political science. There's a lot of research that's been done on mobilization of women combatants that shows that left-wing organizations are more likely to recruit women in the first place. So maybe it's not so surprising that this is also what we see with the the Turkish and the Syrian Kurdish armed groups. Uh, In Iraq, those organizations are more nationalist. The PUK has kind of like a soft leftist orientation, but it's not really like their main political project. So they're not quite as ideologically invested in recruiting women. But maybe the larger factor, I think, in explaining that difference is who these different political parties felt beholden to, like who they felt they they owed something to and who they had to appease. So the armed forces in uh, the armed groups in Iraq, the Peshmerga, very early on in the, the sort of the early days of the Kurdish nationalist movement, the leaders of those parties formed a lot of alliances with local tribes for they've always been very beholden to uh, sort of local tribal networks for uh, their political authority. And that remains true even today. But that's a lot less true uh, for the Kurdish movement in uh, in Turkish Kurdistan, that is in, in eastern Turkey. And so they were a lot less constrained in terms of their ability to recruit women. But I think the biggest thing uh, that I that I took out of this, particularly with regard to the PKK case, was the role that women themselves played in changing these organizations from within. Um, there's almost we can almost think of as like a Rosie the Riveter effect that we see in the 1980s and into the 1990s in eastern Turkey in the Kurdish regions where uh, there's this military crackdown and all of these men start getting arrested and women who had previously not been particularly politically active become mobilized uh, on behalf of their sons, of their brothers, of their fathers, their husbands who've been arrested and who are sitting in Diyarbakir prison. And so we start to see these protest movements uh, beginning to emerge and women are first mobilized as Kurds, but then within the Kurdish national movement, they become mobilized and politicized as women, uh, which starts to make women's rights an increasingly important political issue inside of the Kurdish national movement. You include a passage from a PKK commander talking about her experience with gender issues. I wanted to get your thoughts on her statement where she talks about how men would make fun of women who couldn't perform the same physical tasks or would sometimes ignore orders from a female commander. She says, we were equal in the fight because we were sacrificing a lot. If they were lying on the floor, we were also lying on the floor. If they were fighting, we were fighting likewise. In appearance, there was equality, but their conception did not change. Yeah, that was a fascinating, fascinating interview. Um, this particular combat veteran, I mean, she, you know, she'd been a commander. She uh, had been in the PKK for years. She'd spent a lot of time in prison, right? Like this was somebody who any kind of credibility that one might be able to build up inside of an armed rebel movement, uh, that was credibility that she had that she had acquired. Uh, and yet she still faced, you know, sort of like snarky comments from uh, guys, you know, for whom she was their commanding officer who uh, were resentful in this very like low grade way uh, about having to take orders from women. And what I took from that, honestly, uh, was that uh, the PKK is pretty normal in that regard. Uh, We hear the same complaints from women who serve in the armed forces in the United States, in various EU countries, right? This is not um, 
not only is this not unique to the PKK, it's actually, I think, a fairly common problem for women in um, both state and non-state militaries all over the world. So while there are, by most estimates, there's probably a higher proportion of the Kurdish armed forces uh, are women than than most state militaries. The last estimate I saw for the U.S. military, I think, is around 16%. Um, the Kurdish armed forces, or at least the, the PKK, it's somewhere between the high teens and the high 30s, maybe as high as 40% of their fighters are women. But but even so, that dynamic remains constant. Finally, the third case study examines Colombia's civil war. Alexis, could you tell us about women's involvement in that conflict? Yes, I, I think the best way to characterize it is that Colombia has been kind of a unique situation where you have really the extensive involvement of women in multiple armed groups, and you have change in the ways in which women have participated over time. So, uh, you know, mostly in the book, we focus on a couple of leftist armed groups, which are the FARC and and the ELN. Uh, But we also, for example, I mentioned that I think we have about 10 or 11% female participation in right-wing military groups as well. So women have kind of always been present in this conflict over its, you know, 50 plus year history, but they have been treated very differently by different groups. So from the very beginning in the 1960s, when some of the armed leftist movements were starting, uh, some groups openly appealed to women and openly embraced a platform of gender equality. Those were mostly the kind of new left groups like the ELN, Uh, but there were other groups where women were just kind of there. So the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, starts off really as uh, what they call a peasant self-defense organization. Its base was more rural in nature. And so from the very beginning, they would sort of recruit entire families into these rebel camps. And the women would just kind of be there, you know, cooking or taking care of sort of care work around the camp, uh, but they were not actively involved in the conflict and they did not actively get status in the organization. Now, in the case of the FARC, by the early 1980s or late 1970s, it was starting to transform itself more into an organization that looked like a formal military. They were sort of solidifying command structures, ranks, things like that. And those organizational changes opened the door to the recruitment of women and to a doctrine that established sort of formal equality for women in the ranks. Now, the sort of contradiction there is that we had more women attaining visible roles in the organizations, but over the FARC's history, up until the peace agreement that it made with the government in 2016, women never reached the highest ranks of the organization. And there was consistent reporting by human rights organizations and others that women were subjected to forced abortions, uh, women who were in the ranks were forced to have some form of contraception, usually an IUD or uh, contraceptive injections to prevent them from getting pregnant. Uh, And you also had the recruitment of child soldiers, including girl soldiers. So there was this tension between the formal equality of women and these widespread reports of mistreatment in the organization. At the same time, you have the ELN, which continues to be active in a struggle against the Colombian government. They've worked more recently to place women in visible roles in the peace process. So there's some evidence there that they're taking cues from the FARC in order to make women more visible uh, in support of its commitment to the peace process. Uh, But that organization has also dealt with reports over time about discrimination and the mistreatment of women, uh, recruitment of child soldiers, including girls, all of those things. So there's a lot of, of complexity going on there. And there's a lot of interesting change because this conflict has gone on so long in how women are participating, how women are treated by different organizations, and what sort of issues surround all of these sort of gender dynamics of the conflict. You mentioned the idea of groups outbidding one another. Can you talk about what that means? 
Yeah, so outbidding is a term that refers to a dynamic that you find in civil conflicts where there are multiple ideologically similar groups existing in the same space. And this has been written about in political science. Uh, Folks like Andrew Kidd and Barbara Walter have written about this. And you mostly see the term apply to uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups. So the the cases that you see often talked about are instances where you might have, uh, you know, multiple uh, Islamic fundamentalists groups or organizations that are becoming more violent or somehow altering their behavior in order to win more support from the public. So the theory is that you have a public that's watching this conflict go on. They're trying to figure out which factions to support and you have to find some way to distinguish your group from other groups that might have a similar kind of ideology. So a lot of the literature that exists on outbidding talks about groups becoming more violent and being rewarded by the public because of that. But in Colombia, I argue that there's a slightly different dynamic going on in which groups were being rewarded for becoming more ideologically uh, left-wing, for becoming more ideologically open to embracing women's rights. Uh, Eventually, many of these groups have also become open to embracing or advocating for LGBT rights as well. And I think that's interesting and that is fairly unique in a civil conflict situation. But the other thing that I think it sort of illustrates is that uh, women are strategic actors. And a lot of the time when we see women participating in political violence, we tend to sort of couch it in terms of uh, emotional motivators that might be driving them to participate in this, you know, unexpected behavior. But in fact, I think women are very strategic. And in the Colombian case, you have these instances uh, of women basically not staying where they aren't recognized. And so Aura mentioned that in her cases, uh, there's this demonstration of, of women trying to push for change and more progressive ideology within the organization. But in the Colombian case, well, women also had options. And so if they were in an organization like the ELN and they felt they were being discriminated against by the leadership, uh, you have instances where women have been interviewed and said, you know, I was going to these meetings. I felt like I wasn't being listened to. I felt like we weren't being included in the strategic space. And I heard that somebody else was starting up some other uh, politically violent organization. And so I went over there to help them out. So it sort of shows the uh, strategic nature of women's participation in these conflicts as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. With these different case studies, the book allows for comparison of the experiences of women fighters across different conflicts. I'd like to shift gears and take this opportunity to ask a few questions where we can compare some of the different findings from your research in these different case studies. Jessica, can you start us off with talking about what you saw in terms of women's roles in armed conflict? I think that one of the important things that we learned is that there, within non-state armed groups, there is a broader sense of the importance of flexibility within roles. So for instance, you know, the support roles that women often play in maintaining camp, cooking, um, and other things, those are really valued within non-state armed groups in a way that they might often be dismissed in kind of traditional militaries. So for instance, in commending one of the female fighters, a rebel group commander in Ukraine, Uh, described her as, you know, someone who goes into the field to rescue our fighters when they are wounded. Plus, she's our best sniper, but she can also cook for us and drive our tank. Women take on a wide range of roles within these groups, and that's really an asset to these groups. And I think that's something that we identify, that it's not just about can a woman pick up a gun and man a military checkpoint or engage in active combat. It's about the kind of whole package that women bring to these groups and the ways that they contribute and support their military efforts. Alexis, how did you see women's roles play out in your research? 
Uh, I can say that for me, I thought it was really interesting to sort of explore the leadership of women in these organizations. And in the case of the FARC, I mentioned that, you know, there really have never been any women who have reached the highest leadership members, uh, membership ranks at the national level of the organization. And that's kind of a puzzle because we have these reports that women were between 30 and 40 percent of the FARC's ranks at the time that the peace agreement was concluded in 2016. So there's this sort of question of why women were not reaching those highest ranks. There's some suggestion that there might be an ambition gap, that women were happier to stay in the positions that they were in and be recognized for the work that they were doing rather than actively attempting to move up in the ranks. But there's also this interesting dynamic that surrounded the peace process with the FARC, in which I think women found ways to become visible leaders of the organization without actually becoming leaders in the organization. So the inclusion of FARC women in the peace process was really initially the result of sort of civil society advocacy and women's peace groups in Colombia. But the FARC women who participated in the negotiations in Havana, Cuba, really ended up stepping up, uh, forming relationships with women who were representing the government uh, and the Colombian military. And they ended up becoming a very visible face of the peace process. And even now on social media, some of them have really positioned themselves as some of the most visible advocates uh, of the sort of post-peace process that's going on right now. So it's very interesting that, that women have found this sort of alternative path in a way to leadership within that organization. And Aura, how can the visibility of women fighters affect the conflict itself. One of the things that became very clear, I think, to all of us as we were working on this book is that in the way that we talk about armed conflict in the media, in academic discourse, although, you know, this is certainly changing, um, there are normal soldiers and then there are female soldiers, right? There's normal combatants who are men and then uh, female combatants are this other sort of exceptional category who are always treated as being an unusual exception to the norm. And the reality is that just isn't true. Um, while not every armed group recruits women, and while, you know, as Jess said, you know, women are in, are involved in armed conflict in a wide range of different ways. They're cooks, they're also snipers. Sometimes the same woman is both a cook and a sniper, um, but they're always present and they're always there. And not recognizing that, right? Not recognizing that, uh, you know, children who are abducted uh, into armed groups also include girls, right? That that means that we're ignoring some really important aspects of armed conflict that uh, we're, you know, we're doing ourselves and the, the people whose experiences we study a real disservice. Um, and the other thing that I would say is there's a lot of sort of powerful symbolic baggage that uh, female combatants have to carry around with them whether they want it or not. Uh, so in the case of female Kurdish fighters, they never really get treated just as soldiers who might be fighting for you know personal reasons, for ideological reasons, because uh, they want to defend their community, because uh, they, you know, they don't like ISIS's political project, right? They're always female fighters and they're always this kind of like human rebuke to ISIS uh, instead of just getting to be combatants. And increasingly, there's been some pushback, um, uh, both from observers and I think from from women fighters themselves against this like exoticization uh, of women in the Kurdish armed forces, which I think is positive, because it's going to help us see these people as, you know, as they want to be seen and as they are. So when we look at the mobilization of women joining armed groups, what are the significant factors in terms of their motivation for taking up arms. Yeah, I guess I can say something about this. And, uh, you know, again, I mentioned that I think a lot of the media focus certainly on women who join violent armed groups or engage in political violence really focuses on those kinds of emotional drivers, uh, things like death of a family member or having a family member or a friend harassed or tortured by security forces uh, or sexually abused. But these 
intimate experiences of violence often signal larger political realities. So in my assessment of uh, women in these Colombian leftist armed groups, uh, especially for women who were in the FARC, many of them did come from backgrounds of extreme poverty. They came from broken homes. They came from abusive home situations. Uh, But there's also a political reality underlying that, that these homes were broken because of things like violence that was being committed by state agents or paramilitary groups, by widespread poverty within these rural regions, or by structural inequalities in, for example, Afro-Colombian communities or indigenous communities. So really, whether you see these women's motivations as being primarily rational or primarily emotional is an issue of how you choose to frame that. And I think that In the case of women, women's motivations are very often framed as being primarily emotional, whereas the same kind of push factors that you see being influential in the case of men and boys who are joining these groups, those decisions are viewed as rational. And so I think there's an interesting way there in which our perception of gender and our gendered lens affects how we view the motivations of women. I, yeah, I would I would add something to what Alexis just said, um, which is that in some ways, this attributing of, uh, of like emotional reasoning uh, to women's choices to join an armed group, whereas men are you know perceived as being rational, uh, in some ways speaks to um, like almost a distrust of uh, women's stated motives or what they're doing, right? If a, if a group of women say, yes, we've joined this armed group uh, because we support their political project, because we, um, you know, see the state as having wronged us or having, um, you know, harmed our community, or, you know, we think that our uh, political party could do a better job of things uh, to then say, yeah, but really this is just because of some, uh, you know, some like personal emotional motivation. What that says is that people are less inclined to, to actually believe women when they say why they're doing what they're doing, uh, which is maybe something we're thinking about. I also think that there exists a strategic rationale behind why certain groups actively recruit women to the degree that they do. So if you look, for instance, at Ukraine, it is absolutely the case that there is a manpower shortage, but that manpower shortage operates on both sides. Ukrainian armed services has decreased in size, and uh, the actual Ukrainian army put out a recruitment call for women. They tried to draft women um, because of a manpower shortage. So to to say that non-state armed groups are only drawing on female fighters because of a manpower shortage is true, but it's also not the root of what's going on in that conflict. And I think we see that um, in many of these conflicts as well, that yes, groups are stronger for having women participate in them. Groups are able to operate in different ways because women participate in them. Um, But ultimately, women are drawn to these groups because they speak to the needs and desires of women to either protect their home, to protect their nation, whatever it is. And so I think that we need to really look at the motivations, not only of women, but the motivations of various armed groups um, and see how that shapes the ways in which they recruit, mobilize, and integrate women into their forces. I'll ask Alexis to start us off with this question. Can you talk about the role of women fighters in the peace process? And do female fighters have specific needs to successfully reintegrate after a conflict ends? Oh, definitely. Uh, And, you know, I had the opportunity when I was in Colombia earlier this year to speak to some people who had been uh, going into some of the demobilization sites where uh, FARC men and women had gone through a process of disarmament and were really kind of just waiting out to see what was going to happen with the transition to the peace process. And so there are special concerns with that related to women. One of the more general concerns that affects everyone who's going through this disarmament is that uh, in order to fully reintegrate these individuals, there has to be some kind of 
job for them to go to when they return to these communities. Uh, one of the things that the peace agreement process uh, promised was that there was going to be more investment in rural communities, trying to create economic opportunities, trying to pursue some kind of land reform for individuals so that they would have something to return to when they went back to these communities so that they would not be you know, tempted to just join another armed group. Um, but that has not really been happening in the way that the peace agreement envisioned it was going to happen. So uh, the United Nations and others have warned that this reintegration process is not going to go well if there are not opportunities for people more generally. But this is particularly a pressing issue for women because women from these rebel groups are kind of pushed uh, from both sides now that they're going to face the same issues that all other demobilizing combatants are going to face in terms of of having to, you know, go back to these communities and find opportunities. But at the same time, they also face this kind of ongoing structural discrimination within the country that really limits their access to uh, economic opportunities as well. So for women especially, this is a, a really um, tense time in terms of pursuing this demobilization option. Uh, and we have seen in Colombia that unfortunately a lot of uh, FARC combatants have been leaving without completing the reintegration process, uh, which raises questions about where these individuals are going to end up in the future. Jessica, what are your thoughts? I think as the conflict in Ukraine has stalemated and there are discussions about, you know, whether or not the agreements um, that were hashed out at Minsk will or will not be implemented, um, the role of women uh, in the peace process, it's really been placed at risk. So there is a high chance in Ukraine that these women have mobilized on behalf of the rebel groups, but also on behalf of the government, that their contributions will be neglected, right? And the motivations that brought them uh, to the front lines that, you know, force them to take up arms, those are going to be left unaddressed in any kind of peace process that emerges, in part because the dynamics of that conflict and the kind of competing nationalisms at play are so pose a high bar to kind of the conflict's resolution. And without formal peace processes, formal reintegration processes, we know that women are often uh, left out. And so my worry is that as the conflict kind of smolders on in Ukraine without any serious resolution, that the needs of the women who have taken up arms there will continue to go unaddressed. Ora, what did you see in your research? Uh, so un unfortunately, um, there isn't really a conflict resolution to speak of. Like, there's not really a resolution to the ongoing conflict uh, in Syria or this sort of like simmering conflict between the PKK and the Turkish state uh, in Turkey. I will say that in both the uh, the political wing of the PKK and the political government, well, the set of institutions that kind of look something like a government uh, in the Kurdish-controlled regions uh, of Syria. Uh, there are gender quotas in place, so there are already uh, sort of requirements that uh, all political offices above a certain rank be held jointly by a man and a woman. So there are already a lot of women in positions of political authority, um, which means that you know, in the event of a settlement that leaves any of those institutions still standing, and that's an open question, uh, we should expect to see plenty of women involved in any kind of future governance. But but as to what that resolution would look like, uh, I think it's probably pretty premature uh, and, and a bit unrealistic to try and predict it. Jessica, in the conclusion, you spend a little time talking about women in Salafi jihadi groups such as ISIS, Boko Haram, and Al-Shabaab. What were your main findings from looking at these groups? I think it's important to note that, you know, our main focus is on women who participate in kind of traditional rebel groups where they sport uniforms and they have armed formations and they're kind of engaged in conflict against uh, national governments for the most part. The Kurds obviously are, are a little bit in between. But we turn to these other cases of Salafi jihadi groups because they're very prominent in the media, but also they challenge kind of the lessons that we learn from these more traditional 
civil wars in that we have higher levels of, for instance, forced participation in groups like al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and ISIS than we do with these more traditional rebel groups. Um, But also those groups use women in very different ways. So for instance, if we take the case of suicide bombers, um, there have been uh, female Kurdish suicide bombers, but they have not at all been used to the degree that female suicide bombers have been used by Boko Haram, for instance. Uh, but even within Salafi jihadi groups, you know, Al-Shabaab has been very hesitant to use female suicide bombers. So we see a lot of variation across different groups. And I think that's one thing that adding these cases uh, contributes to our book. This body of research must have presented some interesting challenges from multiple languages to the somewhat limited data on women's participation in some of these groups. Alexis, can you tell us about your experience in researching the book? Yeah, I can start. Um, You know, my time that I spent in Colombia was more sort of doing archival research uh, than interviews, which I know some of the others did. But, uh, you know, a lot of my most interesting experiences while I was there dealt with seeing how much of everyday life is still shaped by concerns related to the war, concerns related to violence and crime. So especially in Bogota, where I spent most of my time, I found almost an obsessive concern about safety. So as a foreigner, uh, you know, despite being fluent in Spanish, despite having spent a lot of time in Latin American countries, I would get warned not to go out at night, not to talk to people. Uh, There were these sort of elaborate systems of getting a taxi that were meant to ensure that you wouldn't get kidnapped. So, you know, it was really interesting to see that even a couple of years after this major peace agreement, violence is definitely still a reality in the country. It's still a concern in a lot of the country. even though the conflict is not maybe what it once was, uh, the memory of people is long and changing those processes uh, is really going to take time to move people beyond that mentality. Aura, how was the research process for you? For me, uh, what was a bit challenging, so I, I did a bunch of interviews uh, for this project in uh, both in Istanbul and uh, with former members of the PKK who are living in, who are now, you know, demobilized and retired, who are now living in Germany. Uh, and what was challenging for me was that uh, I needed to use an interpreter, which uh, you know, most of the time, if I'm doing interviews and, in, you know, and sort of my other research projects, uh, I'm doing the interviews in Arabic, which I speak. Um, and in this case, I needed to use an interpreter, which was sometimes uh, tricky and uh, presents, you know, creates some sort of interesting research dynamics. But in one instance, uh, the interpreter who I used was actually the daughter of the person who I was interviewing. And that ended up being really great uh, because it gave uh, my my sort of ad hoc research assistant a chance to hear a bunch of stories from her family that actually she hadn't heard before. Um, and that uh, was sort of this interesting and ultimately, I think, really positive side benefit uh, of the research process that I had not planned for, but uh, it seemed to work out like pretty well uh, for all concerned. Uh, And the other thing that I found working on this particular project was people were so uh, positive and enthusiastic about participating. So uh, I interviewed a lot of people from various uh, Kurdish women's rights organizations uh, in mostly in, in Istanbul, um, who were all just like incredibly generous with their time and really like excited to talk about this stuff in, in some cases, uh, on a really, uh, theoretical and really sophisticated level politically. Like, um, people wanted to dig into all sorts of, uh, different interpretations of traditional feminist doctrine. And it was really great. It was a really interesting set of conversations. Uh, and I learned a lot and it left me with a lot to think about both for this project and for other projects. So um, this one was a whole lot of fun um, the, to do the research for. Jessica, what was your research process like? We all use different um, sources of information and kind of methods of analysis in this book. And what I relied on primarily was um, YouTube videos that had been posted by various news agencies, various rebel groups. 
And so in some sense, you know, I watched a whole lot of propaganda, which can in and of itself be fascinating. But if we look at the conflict in Ukraine as a nationalist conflict, which I think at its heart, it really is. Uh, it's about the future of Ukraine and the country's direction. The way that language is used is fascinating. And unfortunately, you don't get a good sense uh, of this in the book because everything, you know, I translated everything into English. But even on the pro-government side, the Ukrainian nationalist side, women who are participating in these far, far right nationalist kind of xenophobic militias uh, that were really prominent early on in the conflict, you know, they struggle to speak Ukrainian. So even though that they're very pro-Ukraine, they're their interviews, all of the media, it's occurring in Russian, which I think is a really fascinating dimension of the conflict uh, that gets missed when it's in translation. Uh, but also, I think one really interesting dimension for Ukrainian women on both sides of this conflict is that they didn't feel the need to shed their femininity or their womanhood to take part in on armed conflict. And I think that is something that you see across a lot of these groups, that women maintain their identity as women. And that came out in the fact that the rebel fighters in Donetsk even held a beauty pageant for their female fighters um, and invited the international press to attend this. And it goes to show you that, you know, our kind of conceptions of fighters or soldiers as these kind of very male gendered um, identities where women have to kind of suppress their visions of themselves or their, you know, perception of themselves as women, that doesn't hold true across cultures or across contexts. And I think that is something that is really interesting and powerful if we think about how women's roles uh, can be expanded within the U.S. military. Thank you to all three of you for coming on and sharing your work. Before we let you go, I'd like to ask you each uh, what you're working on for your next project. Jessica? Right. So most of my work focuses on the intersection of conflict and development. So the book project that I'm currently working on uh, looks at the successes and failures of foreign assistance as a counterterrorism tool. And Alexis, how about you? What's next? Yeah, I have a couple of things that I'm working on. Uh, I have an academic paper that uh, should be out hopefully uh, fairly soon that is about more about women's leadership in some of these non-state armed groups. And I'm particularly proud of that because I have uh, a few undergraduate students that I worked with when I was a visiting instructor at Duke University who did some great work with me on that paper. Uh, longer term, I've also been uh, doing some interviews for a project that I'm hoping to develop in the future on uh, gender issues in U.S. foreign policy. So I've been actively looking for uh, individuals involved in that area who are interested in speaking to me about uh, sort of how the U.S. is kind of interacting with this more global phenomenon of the women, peace, and security agenda uh, and trying to incorporate gender issues into its foreign policy. Aura, what's in the pipeline for you? So uh, I'm actually currently in Amman, Jordan, doing field research for a new book that's about the, the ongoing conflict in Syria. Um, so I've been doing sort of basic ground level field research to, to try and get some traction on what the various ideological divisions are in the Syrian war, which will ultimately, I hope, kind of uh, provide a map so that we can better understand some of the very complicated uh, and competing narratives about what exactly is happening in Syria, which in turn, I think, may help us understand why the war has been so difficult to resolve and uh, why the patterns of violence look the way that they do. Thank you again for being on the show. And I hope to have you all back to discuss your future projects. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars by Jessica Trisco-Darden, Alexis Henshaw, and Ora Seckley is available now from Georgetown University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.